before we take uh, the time to really focus on what, uh, a portion of God's word this morning, why don't we take a second and go before the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless that time. May the thoughts that we think and the words that I speak be pleasing in your sight, dear Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. During the, the children's sermon, I kind of uh, tipped the handle a little bit of what we're going to be kind of focusing on and talking about today. Um, but for the adults, uh, just a quick show of hands. How many of you did have to take a foreign language at some point during your schooling, whether high school, college, anything? See, I knew it. It's basically everybody, right? And if you're anything like me, it was also maybe one of your, like, not the best subjects that you have to do, right? Um, if you didn't grow up with doing multiple languages, learning a foreign language is really, really hard. And for some reason, I got it in my head. I had to take Latin my freshman year of high school. And then I decided, you know what, I want to do more Latin. So all the way through high school and college, I ended up taking six years of Latin. Um, I took a year of German in there somewhere. Um, I took one year or three years of Greek and then one year of Hebrew before I decided, you know what I want is one more language. And I actually took a really intense Spanish class my last year of high school or uh, last year of college as an elective. So um, I'm not trying to like show off to you guys or anything like that because if you looked at my report cards, you would know I'm not showing off at all. But what I'm trying to get at is when it comes to something like speaking a foreign language and speaking it well, we tend to see the evidence of speaking a language well and say there has to be a reasonable explanation why someone's able to do that. So you hear this guy speak a little, and a big emphasis on a little Spanish, to the kids this morning, and naturally you just say, how is he able to speak Spanish? Oh, he must have taken Spanish classes at some point during his schooling, and it all makes sense. And for a lot of us, we would say there's a reasonable explanation behind absolutely everything that we see and hear and experience, that absolutely everything has a natural explanation behind it. And that works really, really well for us most of the time. Um, if, you're, if you're working in a laboratory or running science experiments, that's just the way you have to assume everything is working. But again, right there, there's, there's this assumption behind it. You're assuming that there are natural causes behind absolutely everything that we see and hear and experience. And so today when we're talking about Pentecost, uh, I said earlier, sometimes Pentecost I think gets lost in all of the, the festivities that happen in the church. There's so many awesome things that happen in the church. And even people outside the church would probably know some of the basics of what we celebrate as followers of Jesus. He was born in a barn in Bethlehem. Jesus lived and did miracles and taught people. He died on a cross. He rose again, and some people outside the church might even know, and then after he rose again, he ascended back into heaven, and that's where he is right now. And sometimes in all of that, then Pentecost kind of gets lost a little bit. But Pentecost is still a really important thing for us to celebrate as the church. But it needs a little bit of explaining. 
Because if you would have been there on the, at the first Pentecost, you would have seen and heard and experienced things that you would not have been able to explain. And so those followers of Jesus that experienced these awesome things at the first Pentecost, they had to explain themselves. And maybe as we think about reaching out to people and sharing Jesus with people that haven't heard about him yet, there are some parts of Pentecost today that we still have to explain, we still have to talk about. So as we look in Acts chapter 2 today at what happened at the first Pentecost, let's, let's do it kind of like pragmatically. Let's just look at the evidence Let's look at what God did at the first Pentecost and then see the facts that uh, that evidence points to. So today we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. We're going to be reading a pretty long section there, but let's start by reading the first 13 verses. When the day of Pentecost came, they, followers of Jesus, were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They've had too much wine. If you've ever wondered um, why this festival is called Pentecost, um, the name just comes from the Greek word for 50. And the reason it has that name is because Pentecost is the Greek name for a Jewish festival that happened 50 days after another big Jewish festival called the Passover. And so Jews, if you were a faithful Jew or a Jewish convert, you were supposed to go to Jerusalem to worship for three big festivals, and the Passover and Pentecost were two of them. And a lot of people that would make the journey to Jerusalem to worship for Passover, and then they might have just even stayed in Jerusalem for a while, because 50 days later, you got to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate another big harvest festival. But these followers of Jesus that we heard about in Acts chapter 2, they're staying in Jerusalem for a different reason. They're staying there because Jesus told them to. Before Jesus ascended and went back into heaven, he said, wait in Jerusalem until I make good on my promise to give you the gift of my Holy Spirit. And then you'll know what to do after that. And so they're waiting in Jerusalem, and just to kind of, so you can visualize the timeline, it's been 40 days since Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and then Pentecost then is 50 days after, okay, so the disciples had to wait 10 more days 
for Jesus to finally make good on his promise to send the Holy Spirit. And then the other problem is, Jesus wasn't super specific. He didn't tell them exactly what it was going to be like when the Holy Spirit came. Um, I, I got lunch with a guy up in Canton this last Friday, and as I'm driving to the restaurant, I realized I've never seen him face-to-face -face before. We only talked on the phone, and he's never seen me face-to-face -face before. So you walk in, and you're like, okay, what am I looking for? <laughs> and I wonder if that's kind of what the disciples were like at the first Pentecost. They're, they don't know when exactly, and they don't know exactly what to expect. And so they were probably just as surprised as everybody else when all of a sudden they hear that sound like a rushing wind, but you look outside and none of the trees or plants are blowing around. There's, there's no dust moving. What's going on? And just as surprised as anybody else when they look and there's what looks like tongues of fire that seem to be sitting on everyone's heads. And then all of a sudden they're speaking in languages that they had never learned. Some of these languages they probably never even heard before. But here they are speaking them fluently and speaking about the wonders of God. They're praising God. That's the first thing they do when they get this awesome gift from the Holy Spirit. And these were the signs. This is the evidence that God is giving his followers that the promise was here. But with all of that rejoicing, with all of that excitement, it doesn't take long before they're grabbing the attention of a lot of people. And then before you know it, this crowd has gathered around and the people are shocked to hear these guys speaking and rejoicing in these languages that they haven't learned before. And that list that we had in Acts chapter 2, that list of all those names, some of them that are a little hard to pronounce, those are all regions that are all around Israel. This is kind of like every language of the known world at this time. And to hear Galileans, people from Israel, speaking this way would have probably been the biggest surprise. Um, during this time, Israel, the people in Israel, they spoke Aramaic. And, but a lot of them probably also knew Greek, because Greek is kind of the common language of the Roman Empire at this time. But then to hear them speaking native, their native languages is a really big deal. It, it's amazing. It's exciting. But it's also a little confusing. We heard the people say, utter, it said, utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it each of us hears them in our native language? So we can see why this God-given evidence on Pentecost, it needs an explanation. Just put yourself in that crowd that day. You hear that sound like a rushing wind, but there is nothing like that. And then all of a sudden these guys are coming out of this room and they're speaking all different kinds of languages and they're rejoicing. And, and, and you're sure they aren't from your country. <laughs> they're, fr they're from Israel. And what in the world is going on here? Have these guys studied these different languages? Maybe they enrolled in like an immersion program. That's how I usually explain it. If somebody's really, really good at speaking another language, ah, did you know Don was so well-versed in German? I bet he spent some time living in Germany and learning the language right from the people. Thing is, the explanation of an immersion program, it doesn't really fly back then. They didn't have immersion programs. You learned the languages you needed to learn when you were growing up, and that was it. 
there was no use of learning those other languages if, if you didn't think you were ever going ever to need them. So you've got to throw that one out. Um, and then the other explanation is a little comical. I, it's kind of funny that, that some people thought this, but this was, this was how some people were trying to explain it. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Um, that one doesn't work either um, for two different reasons. Later, Peter's going to tell us it's only 9 in the morning, so this idea that people would just be so drunk that they're babbling incoherently just doesn't really fly. Um, but the other reason it doesn't really work is, have you ever heard somebody who's drunk start speaking intelligible languages that they've never learned before? I, I, I have yet to experience that. I've never seen anybody do that. Um, so common sense tells us that if somebody is speaking a different language, we can't just say, uh, look at the lightweights and how far gone they are. Right? That, that's just not how it works. There has to be something else going on here. So one way or another, the people are trying to explain what they're seeing, what they're hearing, and they're struggling to come up with a natural explanation. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? The evidence that God is giving on Pentecost need an explanation. So who better to give an explanation than one of the guys that is experiencing this miracle firsthand? So let's keep reading in Acts chapter 2. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you kind of follow along with what Peter is saying here, the general gist is he's saying you have to rule out natural explanations for what's happening here at Pentecost. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. And when natural explanations fail and fall short, you have to admit there might be something that goes above and beyond nature happening here. And the only explanation for what's going on at Pentecost is that it must be God at work. God is working at Pentecost. Peter said, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so Peter launches into his Pentecost sermon where he's reminding the crowd, who you have to remember, the whole crowd is Jew are Jewish people. They're either Jewish by birth or converts to Judaism. He reminds them that God called his shot through the prophet Joel hundreds and hundreds of years before this would happen. God said that he was going to pour out his spirit on all people. 
And then Jesus, that was the same promise that he spoke again and again to his followers, to his disciples. He told them, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to you. I'm going to make good on this promise that I made through the prophet Joel. And so the only explanation that works for us on Pentecost with so many amazing things that go above and beyond what happens in nature, with so many things like that going on, the only explanation that works is that God is at work, that God is keeping his promises. And you have to understand why that is so important, especially for the young church as it's getting started here. Because anyone can just go out onto the street corner, anyone can go up right here on Oakland and Memorial and just start saying that they have a message from God and that you should listen to them and do what they tell you to do. And if you look at the landscape of world religions all over the place, you'll see that that's how a lot of them got started. There's one guy who supposedly got a revelation from God himself, and now he has the true message and everyone should listen to him. I mean, if we're just going to pick on two of them, you have Joseph Smith, the guy who founded Mormonism. He was alone in the woods when the angel Moroni came to him and supposedly gave him this revelation of what God actually wants us to do. And Muhammad, the prophet for Islam, he was the only one who got these prophecies. And actually, it's a, it's, it's a big crime in Islam to question Muhammad and his prophecies in any way, shape, or form. But in both of those instances, you have one guy, and that's the one guy we're supposed to listen to. Compare that to Pentecost. It's not just one guy. When we talk about Pentecost, I told the kids, I like to think of it like the birthday of the Christian church. And it really is. Because on that day, not just one follower of Jesus, but a whole bunch of followers of Jesus were given this gift of the Holy Spirit and started sharing this new message, a good message, great news for all people, that the promised Messiah, Jesus, had come and that he lived perfectly in our place, that he died a death we deserve so that we could have forgiveness. And then he rose. He didn't stay in his tomb. He rose again, and now he's alive and is ruling over all things for the good of his people. And that good news is for the whole world. And that's the message that the disciples went out to share. That's the good news that they were going to share. And as they shared that, The question might have come into some people's minds, why should we listen to this message? Out of all the noise that we hear every single day, the noise we still hear today every single day, why is this the truth? Why should we listen to this one? Well, the first thing is, these guys were eyewitnesses. They followed Jesus for a lot of his time here on earth. They saw him die. They saw where he was buried. But they also saw him alive again. They even got to touch him and see him, talk with him. They spent 40 days, 40 days that they must have treasured sitting at the feet of their Savior, the Savior who had just won them forgiveness, who had just defeated death and had kicked heaven's door wide open for all people who put their trust in him. So they were eyewitnesses. They knew that this was true, and if it wasn't true, all somebody had to do was go to Jesus' tomb and peek inside and point out there's his body. But at Pentecost, God is giving his followers the proof that they need to back up their claim. 
God is saying, you should listen to these eyewitnesses, not only because of what they saw, but because of the gifts that I have just given them. The ability to speak in languages, the, the tongues of fire, all of those things just gave a little extra oomph to this message as it started to go out into the whole world, just like Jesus said it would. Because if we need that proof. We need the proof of Pentecost, because we all struggle with doubt, right? We all struggle with, is this true? Is, are, are these the facts? How do we know that the evidence of the Bible is all true? Well, we have the eyewitnesses. And then we have this proof of God backing up these guys, saying what they're sharing is true. And that has huge implications for us today, because the facts it points to, if the evidence of Pentecost is true, it means that God is a promise keeper. If he makes a promise way back, in, way back through the prophet Joel that it comes true at the first Pentecost with his disciples, it means that every other promise God makes, he can and will keep. So that when he promises and assures us that when Jesus said it is finished at the cross, it is truly finished. Our debt of sin has been paid for. You don't have to carry your guilt around anymore. That when he says he's given his Holy Spirit to us today, that he makes good on that promise. And that's so important because it means the Spirit is still at work in his church today. Maybe not at work exactly the same way, but he is still at work equipping his people and giving good gifts to his people so that we can do this work that he sent the disciples to, out to do. And he sends us out in, to do that work with that same Holy Spirit still at work. And that's such an awesome blessing because it, it's a blessing because that means that when I stand up here as a pastor and tell you, your sins are forgiven, I forgive you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that's true. Because the Holy Spirit is saying that's true. If the Holy Spirit is still at work in his church today, it's a blessing for us because that means this promise from Jesus is true. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. If the Spirit is still at work in his church today, that means that when you were baptized, when, the, when a pastor put water on your head and said, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that was, just, that was not just an outward washing that was the Holy Spirit connecting you to the work that Jesus did for you. Planting life-saving and life-giving faith into your hearts. We do the things we do today as a church because we believe our God when he tells us that his spirit is still at work in us today. Still doing awesome things. Still changing hearts. And that's one of the most important things. Because at Pentecost, the, the reaction of the crowd, if you keep reading in Acts chapter 2, you can see the reaction of the crowd. There were those that rejected it, even though they saw all the evidence and the facts that it points to. But there were others who accepted it, who believed it, who heard, that, who heard what God was saying, and the Spirit worked on their hearts. And that's the same work that the Spirit is doing today. That work of changing cold rock-hard hearts that want nothing to do with God and turning them into hearts of flesh. 
of taking those dry bones like in the valley in Ezekiel and breathing new life into them by his Holy Spirit. Sharing that awesome message of what Jesus has done for the whole world. That's work that we still have to do today, whether it's here in Atlanta or up in Canton or all over the world. Such awesome work God has given us. But isn't it also awesome to know that God gives us guarantees and promises through his Holy Spirit to equip us, to encourage us, to enlighten us. He's given us the evidence right here in our Bibles that points to how he keeps his promises. And so now let's go out into that world and explain what those promises mean to people and the big impact those promises can have on our lives. The promises of sins forgiven and the promise of life eternal with Jesus. Those are ours because of the work of the Holy Spirit, work that he made very clear on the first Pentecost. Amen.